What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Lights Out Podcast. I'm your host, Josh. And today, I'm diving into the story of the Ant Hill Kids. This topic was suggested to me by some of you out there. And I gotta say, this is probably going to be one of the most disturbing and disgusting episodes I've ever done on Lights Out, and that's saying a lot. And at the center of this Ant Hill Kids doomsday cult, we have probably one of the most evil individuals that I've covered this far. His name is Roche Thero, and that's my best pronunciation of his name in French. But this man, there aren't even words to describe. Pure evil. This one honestly left me with no words after I learned about what he did. So if you're squeamish or planning to eat something during this episode, I highly, highly recommend you do not. This is definitely a not safe for work episode. Um, so if you play this out loud or maybe have young ears around 100%, this is one of those explicit episodes. But before I jump into the story of the Ant Hill Kids, there are no sponsors today. And... To support the show, there's a few things you can do. One is free. Just make sure you're following the show on Spotify. I really appreciate it. Spotify is the new um, kind of leading platform for podcasts. So head over to Spotify. Make sure you're following the show there. That way you don't miss any episodes. And it also helps me out. Plus, you can watch the video version of the show there as well now. Or if you're an Apple person, you can always subscribe on Apple Podcasts. And of course, I'm always on YouTube. So make sure you subscribe there as well. Also, I still have decent amount of merch left from the last collection I did. There will be a new one dropping here probably in a month from now. Things are taking a little bit longer than I expected, but that's going to be a really cool launch. But yeah, take advantage of the items I still have left at milehiremerch.com. Also, for those that don't know, I own my own CBD and wellness brand called Higher Love Wellness. Higher Love Wellness produces top quality CBD products. I actually took some CBD before filming this episode because honestly it just helps take the edge off. It helps calm me and I'm going to need it for this one. But I've got gummies, I've got vapes, I've got oils, I've got topicals. CBD provides tons of benefits to your body and you can read all about it at higherlovewellness.com and you can actually use code lights out for 10% off your order. I also ship to the UK and a few other countries and it's legal in all 50 states. So I guess it's time to dive into the Ant Hill Kids. This cult originates in Canada, in one of the French provinces, actually. And so, as you guys know, my pronunciations for other places in the world is, at best, maybe passable. I really try my best to learn the correct pronunciations for things, but I don't always get it right. So I'm sorry for all of you French Canadians out there if I butcher some of these names. I'm going to do my very best, but. The person that this all centers around is Roque or Roche Therio. Again, I'm going to be calling him Roque. So Roque Therio was born on May 16, 1947 in Saguenay, Quebec, Canada. His parents were French Canadian and devout Catholics. They had seven children and Roque was the second oldest. In his childhood years, he was known as being a very outgoing kid. 
so much so that he actually played with wild bears out in the countryside near his home. In school, he loved to learn, and his teachers believed he had a higher intelligence than most of his classmates. But his town's local school only went up to 7th grade, so it's not saying too much. Because after the age of 12 or 13, all the kids were done with their education. Rock's home life was typical, but he later claimed that his father was abusive when they were growing up. His father, though, later defended himself and said that he had never beaten his children. Plus, Rock never complained about his life at home when he was growing up. So no one really knows for sure what actually went on in their household. His father was devoutly religious, though, and he was a member of the Union of Electors, also known as the White Berets. This was the Catholic fascist offshoot that came out of the Depression-era religious movement. His father forced him to go door-to-door and hand out White Beret literature every week. Rock hated it so much that he eventually began to resent Catholicism and organized religion in general. From an early age, he saw how it controlled people. He always remembered how much he hated handing out the pamphlets. And many believe that's as hard as his childhood ever got. Because for the most part, Rock had a pretty easy and uneventful childhood. But as he grew older, he noticed a great way to get sympathy was to complain about his childhood. He loved attention, so he often bent the truth and became a natural showman. He also realized that spirituality and religion was a great tool to get people's attention. So he used religion, intelligence, and showmanship to keep the spotlight on him. When he was 20 years old, Rock fell in love with a girl from the next town over named Francine Grenier, and they married on November 11, 1967. After they married, they moved over to Montreal. And over the next three years, they had two sons, Rock Jr. and Francois. Just when they were starting their own family, Rock Sr. began developing severe ulcers in his abdomen. They were so bad that they had to be surgically removed, and he later actually developed complications from those surgeries. He ended up with constant discomfort in his stomach, which made him irritable and angry. His pain also became an excuse to treat people like shit. After the surgeries, he also became obsessed with medicine, and he began studying human anatomy. After a little while, he moved his family back to Thetford Mines and focused his skills on woodworking. He also became involved in local politics and joined a social club. His influence spread around the region, and it wasn't long before people around Canada knew about him. And the more influence he gained, the crazier he acted. He often used his platform to make fun of Catholics, even though many of the people who lived in the area were Catholic. He also took an interest in sex and just sexuality in general, which made his wife and in-laws very uncomfortable. And one of his favorite hobbies became drinking alcohol. He'd often get hammered with the other club members around town. Along with the heavy drinking, he began sneaking around with other women. He used his wood sculpting sails as an excuse to go out of town on the weekends. And once he was away from his wife, he would have affairs with several women before returning home to Thetford Mines. His wood sculpting didn't make him any money, though, and the business was just an excuse to sleep with other women. But it wouldn't last. Eventually, he ended up bankrupt, and the local credit union repossessed his home. His wife, Francine, ended up leaving him and taking the children with her for a while. So Rock ended up staying with one of the women he had an affair with. And that woman was known as Giselle. Even though he had had a sexual relationship with Giselle, 
He needed to keep up his public appearance, so he tried not to be seen with her. Instead, he put a mattress in the back of his truck and lived there. He didn't want to be caught sleeping with a woman that he wasn't married to. It was around this time that he also discovered the Seventh-day Adventist Church. This is an Adventist Protestant Christian denomination, and their main focus is the second coming of Jesus Christ. They also believe that the body, soul, and spirit form one entity. So diet and health were top priorities. And they met in a local motel room every Saturday, which was their Sabbath. Rock quickly became one of their most devoted followers. And since the ministers saw their human bodies as holy temples, Rock began following their nutritional structures and he quit drinking. After a while, his enthusiasm just overtook him and he dove into the Old Testament, which he absolutely loved, its focus on masculine authority. He also became obsessed with the apocalypse and the end of the world. He loved the idea of final judgment and punishment for sin. Soon he would take these ideas and begin forming his own religion. But to make some extra money, Rock began pushing Adventist literature door to door, which he was used to this kind of work since his father made him do it when he was a kid. And since he was so good at it, the local minister eventually let him run a small social workshop on how to quit smoking, which this was a great place for Rock to evangelize his beliefs. People that wanted to quit smoking showed up at the workshops, and he got to sell his spirituality to the people that showed up. And he soon gathered up a handful of followers by 1977. He had about 10 followers or so between the ages of 18 and 24, and many were young women, and they liked Rock so much that they began hanging out around his girlfriend's apartment all the time. Many of the younger women were still living with their parents at the time, but they would often spend the weekend crashing on the couch, the floor, or whatever they could find. Rock convinced many of them to drop out of college, as he told them that the second coming of Christ was fast approaching, so what the hell was the point of getting an education if the world was going to be over soon? He grew close to these young women, and it didn't take long for Giselle to notice how much attention he was actually paying them. At first she was jealous, but Rock told her that he was planning on becoming a priest, so nothing to worry about. Still, the young women flirted with him, and he gained control and influence over his followers. Some of the ministers also became worried because he was just getting so much attention. They became worried that their younger followers were more attracted to Rock than to the church, and his following was growing by the day. In 1977, Rock took his followers on a retreat to Lake Russell. They stayed out in the woods at Muskoka, Ontario. And there they were surrounded by beautiful trees and a deep blue lake. It was a perfect place to connect with their spirituality. Here, Rock met two women, Gabrielle from Quebec and Yolanda from France. They ended up liking Rock and his teachings, so they joined his following. And during the retreat, Rock loved the natural scenery that surrounded the lake. One day during the retreat, Rock went out by himself and took a hike around this beautiful lake. At one point, he found a stone outcropping and knelt down on its edge. He prayed for a moment and looked out at the scenery when he looked up into the sky. A vision came to him. He said that the sky lit up with a white radiance, and the voice of God came down and told him that the place where he knelt was a holy place. This was the first of many times that Rock claimed he heard the voice of God. His reputation grew and his followers saw him as a healer. As his influence got stronger, he decided it was time to move his operation. 
He moved from Thetford Mines to St. Marie, about 40 miles south of Quebec City. And they named the operation Healthy Living Clinic. And they sold alternative medicine, organic foods, and holistic literature. Rook also insisted that everyone wear uniforms. Their uniform was ankle-length pullover tunics. The women wore green, and the men wore beige. And Rook wore a dark brown robe. This operation made decent money, and it began attracting more followers. Many of his followers volunteered to work for free, and others donated to the cause. One man, named Leo Marc Fauché, sold all of his belongings, donated the money to the clinic, and then moved in with his wife and child. Many others did the same. When his following grew, almost all the women became obsessed with Rock, and they always competed for his attention. At the time, he was still dating Giselle, and she became worried about all the attention he was getting. So... She decided to propose to him. A week later, he agreed, and they got married on January 8, 1978, inside an Adventist church in Montreal. All of his followers attended the wedding. When it was over, they skipped the honeymoon, and he and his followers piled back into the van and took a five-hour trip home. But inside the van, Rock continued to flirt and joke with the other women all the way home. Giselle laid down on the mattress in the back of the van and cried the whole trip. She thought marriage would make the relationship stronger, but really, it was just a way for Rock to show the Adventists that he was an honorable man that wouldn't have sex outside of marriage. They strongly believed that marriage was a lifelong commitment between two people. Meanwhile, the minister saw that he was gaining a strong following and many of his followers were young women. Even after the marriage, the other ministers weren't convinced that Rock had good intentions. They even reached out to many of the young women's parents and they tried to convince Giselle to leave Rock but Rock already had a strong hold on all of them. None of their friends, family, or ministers could convince them otherwise. At one point, some of the family members called police because they thought something inappropriate was going on between Rock and the young women. When the police tried to interview his followers, the women refused to speak, as they would protect their leader at all cost. In March of 1978, a woman named Geraldine was admitted to the Healthy Living Clinic. She had been diagnosed with leukemia and had been undergoing treatment in Quebec City. But her husband found out about Rock in his holistic clinic and he insisted that Rock come check on his wife. So Rock decided to go to the hospital and visit Geraldine. And while he was there, he got into a very loud argument with the doctors as he thought they were giving her too many drugs. He told Geraldine's husband that they should take her out of the hospital and put her into the healthy living clinic. Their treatment for leukemia there was grape juice and organic food. And unfortunately, Geraldine died in the Healthy Living Clinic not long after they started treatment. After her death, Rook told his followers that after she died, he had gone into her room and kissed her on the forehead. And he said for a moment she rose from the dead. But he told them that in the end, God wanted his people, so he took her to the afterlife. It was just her time. Rock's treatment of patients at his clinic grew and more people heard about his miracles. In April of 1978, the ministers of the Seventh-day Adventist Church voted Rock out of their church. His views and practices were too radical and he was no longer welcome there. But Rock didn't care. He was focused on building his own following in his new religion. His next plan was to marry some of his followers even though he didn't have the authority to perform marriages. Plus, his followers never expressed interest in getting married to him. So he basically forced them together, but they agreed because they trusted him, and Rock married two separate couples. 
And even though many of the outside family members were against the marriages, they still showed up for support. During the ceremonies, Rock gave rambling speeches about how a woman must always serve a man. After witnessing these marriages, Giselle thought about her own marriage to Rock. At this point, Giselle was now pregnant with his child, and she felt that he gave her no attention. So later, she gave him an ultimatum. Rock would either have to break up the commune and tell his followers to find a new place to stay, or she would leave Rock and move back in with her father. In response to this, Rock punched his pregnant wife in the jaw and forced her to stay in the bedroom for two days straight, and she was only let out when she changed her mind. With his wife out of the way, Rock focused on his clinic. It was financially successful, but it faced a few problems. There was actually a few several outstanding debts that he needed to pay. And police had begun a surveillance operation on the clinic since Geraldine's death. Plus, now that Rock was forced out of the Seventh-day Adventist church, they struggled to get health foods and religious literature in the clinics. So he thought that the only solution was to move out of town. So that's what they did. They packed up their vans and wandered from town to town looking for a new place to stay. In July of 1978, they finally found themselves on the edge of the wilderness of the Gaspi Peninsula. Here he told his followers that he had a vision of the future. God told him that the world would end on February 17, 1979. A storm would send down hail the size of boulders. Earthquakes would shake the land and lightning would set fire to the forests. But his followers would become God's chosen people only if they followed him and lived a righteous life in the Appalachian foothills. So the group wandered into the wilderness. They hiked for two days until they found an isolated hill next to a lake known as Dry Lake. Rock named the hill Eternal Mountain. And this was where they would make their home. At first the group lived in tents, but slowly they started to build up a large cabin. They all worked 17 hours a day hauling construction materials and clearing the land. The whole time they worked, they all wore matching tunics. They eventually even dug a well. And when they reached fresh water, they called it a miracle. But their food supply was low, so they began rationing food. And many in the group lost weight over the weeks. And if anyone complained about hunger, Rock restricted their food supply even more. All the while, as you can probably guess, Rock wasn't even helping with the labor to build the cabin as he said that his stomach pain was too much and that his role was a spiritual leader, not a laborer. As they worked, he told his followers that everyone outside the organization were active oppressors, especially their own family members. Everyone against the church were their enemies and these outsiders were doomed for eternity. A few of the followers thought this was all too much. One woman left the commune and made the excuse that her passport had expired. And Leo, the man who sold all of his possessions, packed up the few things he had left and abandoned the group. Rook didn't stop them, but he told the others that the people who left were evil in the eyes of God. By September, they were finally done building their cabin. It was a single room, and the freshwater well sat in the center. They made rooms by separating them with curtains. Rook said that this would be their home until the end of the world. Inside the cabin, they also performed skits and sang songs. He also gave his followers new names from the Old Testament. Rock took on the name Moses. They saw him as their leader and spiritual father, just like the biblical character. And Giselle became their spiritual mother. Each of them were excited to begin their new life in the wilderness. As for money, they pulled their welfare checks 
and they had a monthly budget of 1400 Canadian dollars between all of them. And this money was used for food and supplies. As people settled in, many of the women in the commune complained that they were lonely and had not been married yet. Once, one of the women even confessed to Giselle that she slept with Rock while everyone else was working on the cabin. Giselle was so upset she tried to run away, but Rock caught her. And when he did, he really let her have it. He tackled her to the ground and wrapped his hands around her throat, and he choked her until she feared for her life. And when he let go, she promised to return to the cabin and stay there. After this, he claimed that all the previous marriages in the commune were void except for his own, and then he began marrying all the women to himself. Now that Giselle feared for her life, he could get away with whatever he wanted, and he could have all the women to himself. After marrying each woman, he often had sex with them to consummate the marriage. Only one of the women didn't want to marry him. And this was Maurice, the outsider of the group. All the other women loved Rock. But Maurice kept her distance. She was only there because her husband, Jigar, believed Rock was the messenger of God. A month after all the marriages, the Jonestown Massacre happened on November 18, 1978. Rock followed the story closely and even claimed that God gave him a vision that this would happen a year prior. The problem was, though, that doomsday cults were now in the mainstream news, and the families of his followers tried to get them all to come home. They even contacted the police and did everything they could. They feared that the commune would turn into another suicide cult. Police wanted to take Rock into custody, but they had no evidence of any crimes. Still, Rock willingly went into the police station and took a psychological test to prove them all wrong. He told the police he wasn't the group's leader and that the commune was a democracy and that they lived in peace. But the police didn't trust him. They just didn't have an evidence of a crime, so they were forced to release him. It was also around this time that Rock gave up the Adventist diet. Since they were low on money, they couldn't afford the organic foods anymore. So he began eating meat and junk food again. He even prostituted one of his wives out to a local grocer so that they could get milk, meat, and cheese. He also began drinking heavily after being sober for nearly two years. At first, it was only communion wine, but then he began drinking beer and cognac. He would get drunk before his sermons, and then he would ramble on for hours. And if anyone fell asleep during his sermons, he'd take a four-inch club and smack them over the head. Soon, this physical abuse spread through the whole commune. One time, he caught one of the pregnant women eating two more pancakes than he did. So he thought it was appropriate to punch her in the side of the chest breaking two of her ribs. Another punishment would be to force them to strip naked and stand out in the cold snow for several hours. After members saw this, no one ever fought back, as they saw Rock as like a god, and they wouldn't disobey him. Whenever someone would eat more than they were rationed, sometimes they would confess to their leader, but for a few of them they couldn't handle the rationing, so they left. Whenever anyone left the group, Rock would tell the others that they were taken by the devil. Maurice, the outsider, eventually began talking about leaving. Rock then told her husband, Jigar, that he should cut off one of her toes with an axe as punishment. At first he refused, so Rock told him that if he wanted to be a man, he would have to learn how to teach his wife a lesson. On top of that, he also belittled him and called him homophobic slurs. Jigar eventually began to cry and Rock grabbed a nearby axe and threatened to cut off his wife's toes himself. But instead, Jigar took the axe, grabbed his wife by the ankle, 
and cut off one of her small toes. Rock had psychologically broken him. And ever since then, Jigar became his main enforcer. Over time, Rock took total mental control over his followers. They trusted him to the point where he could do nothing wrong. And they obeyed all of his commands. Even when their doomsday, February 17th, came and went without anything happening, they still trusted him. Rock was just so convincing that he explained this away and told them that it was hard to understand the messages from God, especially exact dates. And nobody questioned him. And the group stayed together. It's one of the most fascinating things about these cults. And as an outsider, having never been in a cult, it's hard to understand how one becomes so enthralled with somebody to the point where you're doing things like cutting off your wife's toes. I think when you have somebody like Rock at the helm, somebody who's a master manipulator, somebody who scares the bejesus out of you, over time, you are broken by them. The only thing that I can think of to compare this to, at least for me personally, was my experience with religion and being in the church. And obviously there's no, I never experienced abuse or anything like that. Spiritual abuse, that's one thing. But I just know that if you spend enough time with a group and you listen and you become a part of their reality, it's very easy to become brainwashed. And in a much different sense, you know, the military, they kind of do a similar thing. You know, they have to bring a civilian in and make them into a soldier. And how do you do that? Well, through boot camp, basic training, and they break you down. You have to break down the individual, get rid of the personality and give them a whole new set of rules to live by. And that's exactly what Rock did because no one questioned him and they all stayed together. One month later, a local news outlet published a story on the group. And soon after, 10 police officers landed a helicopter on Eternal Mountain. And in dramatic fashion, they arrested Rock for obstruction of justice. And the court ordered him to undergo a psychological evaluation before trial. And while he was away, Giselle tried to control the situation. The followers' family members began showing up, trying to get the followers to leave. But they banded together and ignored their families. Meanwhile, Rock told the psychologist that he was doing good work out in the wilderness. And they believed him. That should tell you something as well. He convinced the courts that he was actually saving his followers from drug abuse and helping to put them on the right track. Even the director of the hospital began to call Rock Moses. And he agreed with Rock that the public had the wrong idea about the commune. So they released him from the hospital. Clean Bill of Health said he was psychologically fit to stand trial for obstruction of justice. Which all of this just reinforced his followers' opinion of him. Because if the doctors didn't find anything wrong with him, then they couldn't either. And ever since his release from the hospital, the media began portraying him as a gentle mountain man. They thought he was just misunderstood because he had a different lifestyle and different views on sex and love. And his influence over his followers and the general public was only the beginning. After Rock returned to the commune, a free man, one of his wives, Gabrielle, died. She had suffered from MS and couldn't walk for most of her life, and they wanted to bury her at the foot of Eternal Mountain, but the authorities wanted to perform an autopsy. In the end, they took the body, but they'd never found any signs of foul play. She had just died of natural causes. 
Rock swore to his followers that if anyone else died on the commune, they would bury their body there without police interference. As it turned out, death would become a common thing at the commune. In November of 1980, a man named Guy Vier joined the following. This was a big deal because he was the first new member of the group since they had moved from the Healthy Living Clinic. Guy had actually heard about the commune on TV, so he decided to head into the forest to find them. When he got there, he went through a short examination before they allowed him to stay. He was only allowed to live in the storage shed away from the rest of the group. They gave him a small wood stove, a case of home-brewed beer, two hens a rooster, and one meal a day. And his jobs were to chop wood, store food rations, and do construction on the cabin. Occasionally, he would even babysit the group's children. But he was not allowed to watch over Rock's children. Rock actually thought that guy was mentally unstable, believe it or not, because he had once undergone treatment for depression. So Rock only allowed him to look after the other children. Rock often referred to those children as animals. On March 23, 1980, they held a party inside the commune. Guy wasn't invited, and he was told to look after the other children. That night, one of the two-year-old boys named Samuel kept crying. This was one of Jigar and Maurice's children. Guy became so frustrated with the crying that he lifted the child up by his throat and punched him in the face six times. The next day, they found out what happened, so they took the young boy and put him under the care of one of the nurses in the group. They noticed that the baby's face was bruised and his head was flopping around his neck. For some reason... His penis was swelling up. So this began a very, very disturbing string of brutal home surgeries that Rock carried out throughout his life. Rock then took a pair of sterilized scissors and cut open the baby's penis so that urine could flow out. Others say that he also tried to circumcise the baby as well. And before he did it, he squeezed 94% ethanol into the baby's mouth to use as an anesthetic. The baby was found dead the next day. And when the mother Maurice found out, all she did was go back to work with a blank stare. Because remember, by this point, her husband had already cut her toe off, but now her baby was also dead. But she felt like she couldn't do anything about it. At dinner, Ruck suggested that they burn the baby's remains. He made the excuse that birds and bears might tear up the burial location. So they all agreed. They burned Samuel's body, And after that, everything seemed to go back to normal. Six months passed and nothing out of the ordinary happened. But one day, Rock decided that Guy should finally stand trial for beating the two-year-old boy that died. So they set up a small courtroom inside the compound and had people act as lawyers in the jury. The trial lasted one hour and the verdict was unanimous. They found Guy not guilty by reason of insanity. But this wasn't enough for Rock. He wanted more punishment, so he suggested that they castrate Guy as punishment. Rock took it to a vote, and out of ten people, only three voted against the castration. The three who were against it was the mother and father of the dead child as well as Giselle. Otherwise, everyone else was in favor. Plus, Rock even managed to talk Guy into doing it. He promised that if he went through with the castration, it would cure his headaches and his problem with excessive masturbation. He convinced Guy that he was a slave, and if he went through with it, he would be a eunuch, which was a step up from slave. So Guy wrote a letter of consent and signed it himself. Ruck then led him down to a table where he made him lie down on his back. They gathered up an elastic band, a razor blade, a magnifying glass, a pair of tweezers, 
and a bottle of ethanol. Guy apparently said the operation was painless, and they threw his testicles away in a Kleenex. After the operation, his wound bled for a week straight, and all he had to deal with that was putting salt water compresses on it every 20 minutes. But surprisingly, Guy never mentioned his headaches again. Now Rock saw he could do whatever he wanted with Guy. If he could call him a slave and cut off his testicles, he could do anything to him. So he often tormented him and physically beat him whenever he wanted. He even told some of the other followers to grab a knife and stab Guy to death. But he would call them off at the last minute. He copied the Bible story of Abraham and Isaac, and it made him feel like God every time he called them off. They would raise the knife in the air to stab Guy, but Rock told them to stop at the last second. After a while, though, Guy couldn't handle the abuse any longer. So on November 5th, he escaped the commune and ran away to the nearest village. While he was there, he told one of the villagers that a young child had died after being kicked by a horse. And when police heard about the story, they raided the compound soon after. They also arrested Rock and the child's parents. And they moved all the seven children that lived on the compound into foster homes. When the police interviewed all of the group members, they told them the story of how Guy had abused Samuel. Then they uncovered the burnt remains of the two-year-old's body. A coroner later determined that the group was responsible for the child's death. Rock, Guy, and the three other members were charged with criminal negligence causing bodily harm. The men who burned the body were also charged with obstruction of justice. The parents were also charged with neglect towards their oldest daughter, who is now five. Rock was also charged with the bodily harm with intent to mutilate Guy. And they all collectively pleaded not guilty to their crimes. All of them, except Rock and Gabrielle, which, by the way, this is a different Gabrielle that joined the group later on. The first one, as you remember, passed away from MS. They were let go, as long as they didn't return to the compound. Rock was denied bail since the court determined that he was a danger to society. His trial ended up lasting nine months, and during this time, the other commune members moved over to New Carlisle. And this is where the trial was held. And when the trial ended, they all were found guilty of all charges. The parents of Samuel got three years probation. Two others received six months in prison and three years probation, and Guy was sentenced, but later acquitted for mental incompetence. He was then admitted to a mental hospital. Gabrielle was sentenced to nine months in jail and three years probation. And as for Rock, he was sentenced to two years in prison and three years probation. They transferred him to our Saneville Detention Center in Quebec City. But this wasn't the end. His followers found four apartments in Quebec City as they wanted to be close to him while he served his prison sentence. Meanwhile, the police burned down the compound and bulldozed the ashes. Some thought this was the end of their cult. But Rock had big plans for his followers. Because while he sat in his cell, he had all the time in the world to think of his future. Years later, he ended up getting out of prison in 1984. And by that time, he had 11 followers stay loyal to him the entire time. They were there, in fact, to greet him on his release. He told them that he had stopped drinking. And going forward, there would be no more violence. He then told them the plan was to go back into the wilderness and let's start it all over again. So he found a plot of land in Somerville Township, Burnt River, Ontario, which is just outside of Lindsay. And by May of 1984, they began construction on their new cabin. Just like their last compound, it was isolated out in the middle of the wilderness. 
They bought sawmills, snowmobiles, and bicycles. They also designed a horse-drawn treadmill that carried water from a nearby spring. His vision for their new compound was much bigger than the last. For this compound, he planned an A-frame cabin, a two-story house with a kitchen, a bakery, and a smokehouse, a cellar, and an altar where he could speak with God himself. The whole compound was built by his 11 followers, which were two men and nine women. They had to work through the summer wearing long pants and long sleeves to keep the mosquitoes away. Plus four of the women were pregnant at the time. And they all had to take care of the 10 children that were there as well, between the ages of 1 and 15 during the construction. After the compound was up and running, he assigned each of his wives different roles. He also made sure to create a hierarchy depending on who he liked. So Maurice, the outsider, was the lowest of them all. He also told Maurice and her husband that they couldn't sleep in the same bed together any longer. And if Maurice ever stepped out of line, Rock encouraged her husband to beat her, even though she was pregnant. He then convinced her husband that she had a birthmark that looked like the number 666 on her skin. So he made her live in her own separate hut with her two children away from everybody else. So fucking cruel. While everyone got settled into their new roles and new compound, they ran into money problems. Now the government considered them an institution rather than individuals, so no one received welfare checks. This reinforced the idea that the outside world was in fact against them. So if they couldn't get welfare from the government, they would get their supplies a different way. So he began ordering his wives to go into town and steal groceries. He told them to snag everything they used to buy, but now couldn't afford. The group then crafted special blankets lined with inner pockets to help with their stealing sprees. But in January of 1985, police caught five of them shoplifting $453 worth of groceries. Their sentence was a ban on shopping in the town of Lindsay ever again. At this point, Rook was desperate for money. He told his followers to contact their parents and ask for money. But by now, he had turned so many of them against their parents that they didn't even want to contact them. So in one last attempt to make money, they ended up selling fruit and pastries. And it turned out that this honest business was the best way for them to make money. Rock ended up calling his fruit and pastry business the Anthill Kids because they all worked together like a team of ants. They still had to ration potatoes and corn, but now they had income and their struggles seemed to be ending. Rock was happy that they had money and now he didn't have a constant fire under his ass. The struggle was over, so he grew bored. When Rock got bored, he drank. And when he drank, he didn't work. He blamed his laziness on his stomach pain, and to treat the pain, he would drink more. So Rock was pretty much drunk, almost all the time. He would then ramble on to his followers about his secret treasures, which was just fake costume jewelry. He then organized naked wrestling matches between his wives for entertainment, or he would place one of the men in the ring and tell the women to just beat the shit out of him. Sometimes he joined in on the fun, but if anyone hit him, he would take away food rations. The more bored and drunk he got, the more horrific the games became. Soon the members of the Anhill Kids were forced to lick each other's assholes and smear their own shit on one another. Then Rock would piss on them. One time he even took a broken wine glass and slashed Jacques' throat for no reason. He then ordered Jacques to be circumcised, as Jacques was convinced he needed to do it for spiritual enlightenment. While Rock performed the circumcision, he ended up removing the entire tip of his penis instead of just the foreskin. But Jacques was fine with it. He was no longer sleeping with his wife Maurice anyway, 
and he believed his circumcision was necessary. After all the abuse Rock put his followers through, he explained that they were now purified in the eyes of God. The shit smearing and penis mutilation was a way to repent for all their sins. When Rock would sober up on the nights after the madness, he would cry. The depression would kick in when the alcohol left his system, and he would pray to God, begging him to stop using him as a vehicle for justice during all the madness. On January 26, 1985, one of the women, Gabrielle, took her baby outside in the cold. This baby, named Elazar, was only five months old. He was Rock's son that he had had with Gabrielle. Outside, it was snowing in the early morning around 9 a.m. It was somewhere around 14 degrees Fahrenheit, and she could see her own breath. She then placed her son in a wheelbarrow and went back inside without looking back. Time passed and the wheelbarrow filled up with snow. About an hour and a half later, the baby was dead. Rock said he had hated his son, Elazar. He said that he had bore the mark of the devil. And he actually often beat the newborn in his crib. So Gabrielle thought the only act of mercy would be to kill the child. The police eventually investigated the death. And the county medical examiner claimed that the child had died from sudden infant death syndrome. Either way, though. The local social services known as Children's Aid Society kept a close watch on the commune from then on, as this was the second known child that had died in their commune, and it definitely wasn't a coincidence. Now that there were many of Rock's sons and daughters at the commune, they were all at risk. Jacques' ex-wife, Maurice, was the only woman in the Anhel gang that Rock hadn't taken as a wife. After a year of not being able to sleep with Jacques, she finally couldn't take it anymore. She had been isolated in a separate hut away from everyone else and constantly treated like an outsider. So Rock finally let her leave. She took two of her children with her. The only condition was that her oldest daughter stayed with the cult. She was nearing puberty and destined to become another one of Rock's wives. At first she agreed and she left as fast as she could. When she returned to the real world, she slowly shed the layers of abuse and programming that Rock had put on all of the cult members and after a few months, she decided to try and get her daughter back. She even got a lawyer and took legal action, and when the Child's Aid Society got involved, they needed the other children to testify on their living conditions. So they took the children into foster homes and interviewed each of them, and with no surprise, all of the children showed signs of living in an abusive home. They would randomly scream, rock back and forth, chant, or smash things. And as they looked deeper into their living situations, they discovered more horrors. Rock had separated the children into two groups, his own children and the others. He called his offspring the chosen children, and the others were animals and slaves. The animals lived with Maurice and were always separated from the chosen children. Maurice's own children were forced to crawl in all fours and barely given food to eat. Rock forbid the rest of the commune members to speak with them. Meanwhile, Rock considered his own children the children of God. They were also the next generation of followers in their cult. But even his own children were treated like shit. And they would all have to watch Rock abuse them and get away with it. Sometimes he would hold them over an open fire and threaten to throw them in. And every time the women begged him to spare their children, Rock got excited. He loved it when they begged. Other times he would take a child outside and nail them to a tree by their clothes. He would then order the other children to throw stones or slash them with knives. They would only stop doing this after he commanded them to. 
He also made the children do chores around the commune, like hand-washing the women's sanitary pads. When they were finally taken into foster care, many had rotting teeth. They were so underfed. The outline of their rib cages were very, very visible. They were all deprived of food, sleep, and hygiene. And they all acted like feral children, as they had almost no education while living in the compound. The closest thing they got to an education was Rock's versions of religious doctrine and sex education. During his teachings, he told them that God lived underground, since this is where flowers grew from. He also told them that God sometimes needed a blood sacrifice. Rock would perform a secret ritual with only the kids. He would enter a dark room naked and then lead a goat into the room by the end of a rope. The goat was actually raised by his daughters from birth. He then left the goat in the center of the room and pulled out a knife. He then slit the goat's throat and the children watched as the goat slowly faded away as the blood pooled in the center of the room. As the goat laid on its side, Rock then took the knife and cut open its stomach. In front of the children, he disemboweled the goat and bathed himself in the blood. He would get the children to chant a prayer and hold upside down crosses into the air. Other times they would hold sex rituals inside the cabin, and these would involve everyone in the commune. Rock and his son Rock Jr. would sexually assault and rape the children. Rock Jr. would force the kids to give him hand jobs while they watched the other adult members giving each other hand jobs. Many of the kids eventually thought this was the proper way to have sex and reproduce. Later, when the child services were done interviewing the children, the court ordered another independent assessment. Surprisingly, two of the doctors who worked on the report recommended that the children should be returned to the commune. In a 300-page report, they respected Rock's experimental take on sex education, and they accused the local government of persecuting the group. They also pointed out that the government withheld welfare from them, hoping that the commune would fail. After this report came out, the Children's Aid Society suspected that Rock was sweet-talking the other investigators, so they would put in a good word. But despite their assessment, the court ruled against the Ant Hill Gang. On October 26, 1987, the children were made wards of the Crown. None of the parents were allowed to see or speak to their children, and the court believed that Rock was an active threat to the kids. When the 83-page court ruling came out, it also mentioned that the doctors who gave the positive assessment of the Ant Hill kids had a bias towards the commune. Since they were a French-speaking community surrounded by English speakers, the doctors gave them special treatment. After the court ruling, there still wasn't enough physical evidence to file charges against Rock, and even Maurice wasn't willing to testify against him. So the madness at the compound continued on. Rock dug deeper into more radical religious practices. He made connections with the Mormon fundamentalist movement and met a forensic psychiatrist named Dr. Jess Grosbeck. And together they dove into altered consciousness, disassociative disorders, shamanism, and the history of polygamy. They became good friends over a couple months and even traveled out to Utah to visit some of his new Mormon fundamentalist friends. But now that he drew the attention of the authorities, Rock started getting into trouble more often. The Enhill gang was caught harassing the foster family of one of his kids, and he was later charged with obstruction of justice. He also assaulted one of his neighbors and later got into trouble with police for a traffic violation in Utah where he was fined $75. Supposedly, he peed his pants when the officers pulled him over. Meanwhile, back at the compound, life was also rough. 
Rock would get hammered and talk about the master of life and death, or the good and bad creator. He rambled on about God and his grand plan for the apocalypse, which still hadn't arrived. One day, he got pissed off at one of the male followers named Claude, so he forced him to wear a tight rubber band around his testicles. Claude feared Rock so much that he even kept the rubber band on overnight. This permanently damaged his testicles, and he was in constant pain after that. So Rock convinced him to undergo another one of his home surgeries for the pain. As always, Rock acted as a surgeon, and when Claude actually went into the operation, he smelled alcohol on Rock's breath. So as Claude laid on the wooden table, Rock took a sharp razor blade and cut open his ball sack. He dug around with his fingers until he pulled out an infected testicle and then took a hot piece of iron from an open flame and seared the wound shut. I can only imagine how horrible and painful this must have been and the blood-curdling screams that must have filled the cabin. After the operation, Rock called a vote. He believed that Claude should be stoned for offending God. To this day, no one even remembers what Claude did to piss off Rock, but it was clear that he was no longer safe in the compound. Rock said that Claude should be killed, but the rest of the followers voted against this. Rock then picked up a welding torch and ignited it, and he looked at Claude with rage in his eyes, and he threatened to cut open his stomach with the blowtorch. Claude then stumbled out of the cabin and into the woods, and he limped as far as he could and camped out for a few days in the forest. This wasn't the first time some of the members had to hide away out in the forest until Rock had sobered up. Gabrielle and Giselle had to do the same. Sometimes Giselle would escape to her father's house nearby. Rock would eventually sober up, give her a call, and convince her to come back home. Despite all this, he still had control over them no matter how much abuse he put them through. Once she came back, he would always treat her with affection for a few days, but then he would spiral right back into a drunken rage. One night he even threw a hunting knife at her, and it flew through the air and sank three inches into her thigh. Her wound began gushing with blood and she fell to the floor. Rock went to the kitchen to chug another beer and then passed out, and when he woke up a few hours later, the wound in her leg formed a clot, and it began to swell up and turn purple. He didn't want to have to take her to the hospital because she might you know, tell them what had happened to her. So Rock again took her over to his operating table. With a scorching hot iron prod, he poked at the wound until it burst open. Then he put a pot of water over the stove and began pouring cup after cup of boiling water into that open wound. A week later, her leg became infected. So he filled the wound with salt, olive oil, and spruce gum, which surprisingly her leg began to heal after that. And now that she could walk again, she tried escaping. But after a few days, she returned. She truly believed that it was her duty to stay with her husband through everything. She believed that God had a plan and her purpose in life was to support Rock. Plus, Giselle found strange comfort in the fact that she wasn't the only one who was abused. And they believed it was all for the cause. He would burn his followers' backs with the welding torch. He even burned one of the women's stomachs right after she gave birth. He broke a man's ribs with a wooden club, punched his firstborn son in the face for refusing to wrestle with his brother, and beat Nicole who was pregnant, causing her to miscarry. Later, he shot her with a pistol in the shoulder. Not only this, the women were also victims of sexual torture. 
Sometimes Rock would clamp their nipples with vice grips until they bled. He also kicked Giselle with steel-toed boots until her ribs broke. His follower Claude took severe, severe beatings. He might have had it the worst out of everybody. Rock would snap his toes, sliced his arm with a piece of broken glass, and shot him with a twenty-two rifle. He later pulled his teeth out with pliers even though they didn't need to be removed. One time, he even hogtied him, suspended him from the ceiling for a whole hour. He also told the women to pluck out all of his pubic hairs until he didn't have any left. On another occasion, he commanded Claude's wife to break his legs with a sledgehammer. On top of all this, Rock poured boiling water on him and made him sit on a burning stove. He then beat one of Claude's horses to death with a metal chain and then forced him to bury the remains. The list of torture and cruelty just goes on and on and on. But his followers saw Rock as God's messenger, so they believed there was a holy reason for all this sick and twisted madness. The lines between punishment and necessity were blurred. He would even force his followers to eat feces and dead mice, and they did it with no questions asked. He punched Salon in the neck and face, and he broke her cheekbone when she was five months pregnant. Gabrielle also became the main victim of abuse. He whipped her in the eye with his belt, broke her fingers with a wooden board, and crushed her hand in a vice. He also told one of the men to break one of her fingers with pliers. One time he operated on her and stuck a needle in her spine. He injected an unknown substance into her and then twisted a needle until the tip broke off beneath her skin. He forced her to jump into freezing water and also burned her breasts and genitals with a welding torch. If Gabrielle wasn't already living a nightmare, she was about to find herself in a living hell though because one day her uterus prolapsed. She was out doing manual labor when her uterus fell three inches outside of her vagina. Rock took her into the cabin where he got his surgical tools ready, and he ended up forcing her uterus back into her body. Then he crafted a wooden cone and shoved it into her vaginal canal. In his mind, this would fix the problem. Gabrielle later escaped to a woman's shelter, but eventually returned to the compound before seeking out medical help. Seeing that the problem was even worse than before, Rock took her back to his operating table. This time he tied a string around a part of the exposed uterus and tried to yank it free. Of course, this didn't work, but Rock was convinced that her problem could be fixed. So, Gabrielle dealt with a whole nother year with a prolapsed uterus, until finally Rock made a trip out to Utah, and she was able to sneak over to Ross Memorial Hospital, where they gave her a partial hysterectomy. Through all of the chaos, Rock was never wrong in the eyes of his followers. In a letter that Salon sent to him, she referred to him as Moses, my master. She mentioned the violence against his followers, the gunshots, throwing knives, and beating his wife. She said that she understood that it's only God's anger that's being expressed through Rock. He was only a vessel. And she was very happy to call him a real master that belongs to the only true master of life. Towards the end of 1988, Salon began feeling sick and Rock convinced her there was something wrong with her liver. As always, he needed to operate on her. So one day, he got drunk and began strangling the women in the compound. He said that their breath belonged to him. After the strangling, he told Salon, who he had renamed Rachel, that it was time for the operation. He led her and a small team of followers into the bakery. Salon then got naked and laid on one of the tables. First, Rock took a plastic tube and inserted it into her rectum. He then poured a mixture of molasses, oil, and water up into the tube. 
basically a homemade enema. He did this for about half an hour and then told her not to be worried about any involuntary bodily functions. Then he put his hands on her stomach and began pressing and punching her. She raised her arms to defend herself, but Rock told her to put them down, and she immediately obeyed. Then he inserted a tube into her throat and told the others to blow and suck air through the tube. Rock rolled over his cart filled with different tools and instruments. He took a sharpened knife and held it just below her ribcage on the right side of her body. He then cut through her skin five inches across, and after digging around, he pulled out a strip of bloody tissue four inches long and an inch thick. He put it aside and told her that she was going to be fine. He then had someone else stitch up the wound and told Salon she could take a warm bath filled with cherries. After the bath, Salon felt just awful, so Rock then gave her a cold bath. After she limped back to her bed, she began coughing up blood. And only after a few hours, they found her dead. There was dark blood that was flowing from her mouth and staining the bedsheets. Later, doctors discovered that she had in fact died from acute peritonitis. Digestive fluids had leaked into her abdominal cavity. After her death, Rock became suicidal. He had convinced himself that his operations were always perfect and he couldn't believe that he had failed. So he tried killing himself in a few different ways. First, he tried to get Jacques to shoot him to death, but he refused. Then he tried to overdose on extra-strength Tylenol. And then he tried to tie ropes around himself and dive into a lake to drown. Later in a letter, he wrote to Solange's spirit. He claimed that when he tried to drown himself, a strange force tore off his bindings. And he emerged from the water believing that God had saved him from death. He believed he served some purpose here on earth. So he took a trip out to Utah on October 16, 1988 to visit one of his spiritual friends none other than Dr. Jess Grosbeck. Rock told him that Solange had suddenly died out in the woods from a ruptured vein in her throat. Jess told him there was nothing Rock could have done to save her. After Jess reinforced Rock's belief that he didn't do anything wrong, Rock told Jess that he was meant to be a spiritual guide. He then told him about strange dreams he had been having. In these dreams, Solange would be inside of his body, and sometimes she became his semen. Jess and Rock discussed what these dreams could mean, and they eventually decided that Solange was going to be the first reverse birth in history. She would be spiritually reborn through Rock, and he convinced himself that he was actually pregnant with Solange. He then carried out a post-mortem marriage to her, and during the marriage, he also became the king of the compound. When he returned to Canada, he made Claude dig up her dead body. They then cut open her stomach and poured vinegar on her organs to keep the maggots out. Then they reburied her. But then a few days later, Rock made them dig her up again. The smell of rotting flesh was stomach-churning by this point, and her body was half-decayed and the skin was falling apart. Rock then ordered Jacques to drill a hole into her skull. Inside her skull, her brain had begun to decay. And this is just so sick. But Rock then masturbated, ejaculated into her rotting brain, and told his followers that this would bring her back to life. After this, they took her body and cremated it. But before the cremation, he ordered Gabrielle to remove one of Solange's ribs. He then wrapped that rib in leather and carried it around wherever he went. After they burned her body, each of them took a bone from the ash pile and kept it with them. Rock collected a few more and stuck them in a mason jar with olive oil. Over time, he continuously ejaculated into the jar, hoping to bring Solange back through reverse birth. And of course, this was just insanity. 
Rock later returned to Utah. This time he wanted to secretly give one of his newborns away to his friend Alex Joseph before Children's Aid Society found out about them. While he was there, Rook got into a heated argument with Alex. During a screaming match, Alex called him out on how he treated his wives like shit, and some of Rook's followers witnessed the argument. They had never seen anyone stand up to Rook like this before. They didn't even think it was possible. It was like someone had stood up to God himself. After this, Rock didn't want to lose power over his followers, so his abuse became even worse. But for some, it was already over. One of his wives left Rock in the winter of 1989. It was one small victory in the group, but Rock still had almost total control. He hid the birth of two more of his children from the Children's Aid Society and continued to cover up Solange's death from her family and the police. And things just continued going on, business as usual. By that summer, Rock got hammered again on July 26, 1989, and he exploded into another one of his usual tantrums. And four of his wives snuck out to the woods until he sobered up, but Gabrielle stayed behind. Rock noticed that her pinky was stiff after he had smashed it a while back. He said he could take a look at it and try to fix it. So she set her arm down on the wooden operating table and for a moment, he pretended to inspect the pinky. But from beneath the table, he pulled out a hunting knife and stabbed her through the hand. So much so that it went all the way through her hand and pinned it to the wooden table. And while she's just bleeding from this wound, Rock went to grab another beer. Gabrielle couldn't get herself free, and she never passed out from all the blood loss. So when Rock returns, after 45 minutes, he finds her still sitting there pinned to the table. By this point, her whole arm had turned dark blue. He told her that it didn't look too good as he grabbed another knife from his collection. He then approached her, set the knife on her arm between her shoulder and elbow, and just began sawing. He cut all the way to the bone, and then realized he was too drunk to keep cutting. So he found one of the other women. Chantal, and ordered her to keep cutting. She ended up cutting through the muscle and tendons until her bone was exposed on all sides. Rock then came over and took out the hunting knife that pinned her to the table. He dragged her over to a wooden stump that stuck out from the floor and set her arm across it. He then grabbed a thick meat cleaver from the kitchen and swung down towards the exposed bone, but missed. The knife drove straight into her flesh. He lifted a knife again, this time he drove it into the bone and it still wouldn't break. So he then grabbed a chainsaw from the tool shed, fired up the engine and hacked away at her bone until it broke into two. The strangest part was that Gabrielle didn't scream through the whole thing. She just silently cried, but never made a peep. The next day she escaped to a woman's shelter, but Jacques convinced her to return. After a few days, Rock thought her wound was infected, so he operated on her again. This time he cut out several infected areas with a pair of scissors. He then began cutting her breast, and when she protested, he hit her over the head with the blunt side of an axe. Luckily, Gabrielle escaped the compound, bleeding from her head, and she fled into the forest where she stayed for a few days. After a while, she began feeling an itch in her head wound. It felt like something was inside the wound, and it turned out that insects had laid eggs inside of it. So when she returned to the compound, Rock was still on a drunken bender, and the head wound was just another excuse for him to operate again. Meanwhile, Jacques removed a metal drive shaft from one of the junk cars parked at the compound. Rock then took the metal and heated it until it was bright red. He then took Gabrielle's arm and fused the piece of metal to the end of her stump. This was the last straw. 
After years of abuse, Gabrielle finally came to her senses and realized that enough was enough, and she escaped the compound and made it to the nearby hospital on August 16th, 1989. At first, she made up a bullshit story about her arm, but after the police showed up, she told them the truth. This was the evidence the police had been waiting for all these years. They could finally charge Ruck with an aggravated assault. But when they rolled up to the compound a few days later, it was abandoned. Ruck, Jacques, Chantal, Nicole, and Ruck's two youngest children had fled to Quebec. The others returned to their families. Many of the followers finally realized that Ruck wasn't the messenger of God. His charm had finally run out after all this time. Police finally caught Ruck after six weeks of searching, and Giselle finally got enough confidence to tell the police about Solange's death. Everyone pled guilty to all charges brought against them when it came to Gabrielle's amputated arm. Rock was sentenced to 12 years in prison, but later it was reduced to 10 because the court believed he was genuinely remorseful about what had happened. Jacques had got five years, Chantal got two, and Nicole got 18 months. But Rock was later charged with first-degree murder for the death of Solange. But since they didn't have enough evidence to prove that it was premeditated, they brought him to trial for second-degree murder. Rock pled guilty, but only under the condition that they couldn't charge him and wouldn't charge him with anything else. On January 18, 1993, the court sentenced Rook Dario to life in prison, and the horrors of the Ant Hill kids were finally history. But three of his followers, Francine, Chantal, and Nicole, stayed loyal to him. They often met him for conjugal visits when he was in prison. The other followers have gone back to society and tried to carry on with their new lives. And the 20-some children that Rock had over the years ended up in foster homes across North America. Rock was eventually held in Dorchester Penitentiary, a medium security prison. In 2002, he was denied parole and he never applied for parole again. In 2009, he tried to sell some of his prison artwork on murderauction.com, but the Correctional Service of Canada prevented any of his artwork from leaving the prison. During the rest of his prison stay, guards and prison staff always thought highly of Rock. He was supposedly charming and pleasant to be around, and most of his prison sentence was uneventful. That is until February 26, 2011, when Rock was 63 years old. Guards found him dead in his prison cell. He had been stabbed in the neck with a shiv. His cellmate, Matthew McDonald, had walked over to the guard station covered in blood and carrying the shiv. He handed the guards the weapon and said, That piece of shit is down on the range. Here's a knife. I've sliced him up. No one knows what went on before the attack, but Matthew said he was disgusted with what he knew about Rock, especially the fact that he had killed and abused women and children. Matthew later pled not guilty to second-degree murder, but was found guilty anyway. But he already had a life sentence, so they just bumped his parole chances up 25 years. But finally, the leader of the Anhill Kids was gone, leaving a trail of blood and carnage behind. The Anhel Gang is an example of how sick, disturbed people can hide behind the shield of religion and spirituality. The local police constantly had trouble finding evidence and arresting Rock because his cult was protected under the laws that protect religions. After uncovering the deaths of innocent children and women programmed by Rook's social charms, the horrors finally came to an end. But they ended a long, long time, far too long after they had begun. His cult following actually lasted for 12 years. And after all the blood, carnage, torture, abuse, manipulation, and just pure horror, a select few still believed that Rock was God's chosen messenger. Oh, just need a moment to 
gather myself. That has got to be one of the most horrific cults that I've ever heard of. Just so sick, twisted, and in the end, I am so glad that Matthew took him out. That, that was the only form of justice that could have been served upon Rock. After all that, putting all those poor people through not only the mental torture, but the physical torture is just beyond anything one could possibly imagine. Cults are just some of the most evil ways to torture people, really. I mean, you're taking them away from their families, you're bringing them under your control, and you're brainwashing them. You're literally stripping them of their freedom, of their lives, in order to serve one's selfish purpose. Personally, I don't think this was ever about God. I don't think this was ever about religion. It doesn't seem like he really even gave a shit about that at the end of the day. I think he saw this was a way to control people. This is a way to get what he wanted. He's living out all of his sick fantasies. I mean, when you compare him to other cult leaders, he has got to be the worst. It just seems like he really got off on this. Like he got off on the control. He got off on the torture. He got off on the abuse. It all just made him feel like God. And so he used the religion as sort of the framework to get people under his control. But then it ultimately wasn't about God. I don't think he actually gave a shit about God. He, he was basically worshiping the devil. He's doing rituals, blood sacrifices. I mean, he is literally the devil in sheep's clothing, I guess you could say. I mean, he's literally just fooling all of them. All of them thought they were following somebody who would lead them to ultimately heaven. I mean, if the apocalypse came, world ended, that's basically what he was promising. Is like, if you follow what I say, you will be okay. We will make it to God. But in the end, he's just dragging them all to hell. Just the, the mental images that I'm sure you, and I know I, got throughout this is just, it's going to be hard to shake, man. I mean, it is just, it is just some of the most brutal things I've ever, ever heard of. And the fact that human beings are capable of doing this to another is just beyond me. This is one evil son of a bitch. And I'm so glad he got what he deserved in the end. But I want to know your thoughts, I guess. I mean, fuck. I don't even know if there's really much to say about this. It's just, I'm so glad this is over and some of his followers were able to get out. But I mean, they are, I can't even imagine the trauma that they live with every day, the PTSD, the, oh my God, the amount of therapy, they're just, uh, never the same after this. I mean, there's nobody that walked away from this, you know, without scars. But with that being said, I'm going to wrap up today's episode there. If you want to let me know your thoughts on this, or if you had heard of this before, if you're Canadian or from Quebec, like be interested to hear if you heard of this before, because I had never heard of this until uh, one of you out there had actually sent it in as a suggestion. And yeah, this is just, this is one of the most savage, brutal stories I've ever heard. And the fact that it's real makes it even, even worse. But that's it for me today. I'll see you guys next week. Until then, lights out, everybody.